This message is provided by Bridgeway Community Church. Thanks for tuning in. Really excited to kick off a brand new series on the book of Esther. And I'm really excited about this series. I want to dive right in this morning. So if you have a Bible, or if you don't, if you want to grab one, I'm going to invite you to turn to Esther chapter 1. Now, I realized in my study this week that maybe the hardest thing about teaching a series on the book of Esther is you finding the book of Esther. It's kind of a hard one to find. It's in the Old Testament. In fact, it's about a third of the way into the Bible. If you can kind of see where my Bible's at, about a third of the way in. I find the easiest way to find Esther is to go to the Old Testament and find the books that are sequential, first and second. So you'll see first and second Samuel, first and second Kings, first and second Chronicles. You're getting really close. Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, that's our book, that's our study. If you've hit Job, you've gone too far, and you want to just pedal back a little bit. But this book is amazing. It's a tiny little book. It's only 10 chapters long. I hope you read the whole thing. We're going to kind of be uh, dancing along the top of this story, but I hope you read the whole thing. And what you'd find is this book was written a long time ago. It's, it was written 2,500 years ago. And I know you might think that, well, come on, Pastor, doesn't that mean it's like, outdated and sort of irrelevant, and I want to tell you it's exactly the opposite. In fact, I think that the book of Esther demonstrates for us so many things about not only the day in which Esther lived, but our day today, because God's truth is God's truth in any age. And in fact, I think this book begins to open up for us answers to questions that if you thought about it, if you thought long and hard about it, you have these questions Two. Let me try to introduce you. I want to introduce you to two questions that I believe this book is going to answer for us. And these are, these are hard questions. So let me kind of go slowly through these. The first question that we're going to get into is, how do you live in a godless society as a religious minority? Now, I know that's a big, loaded question. But think about that. How do you live in a godless society as a religious minority? And I want you to draw parallels to what we have Today, In fact, I think as you read through the book of Esther, you're going to find her time and age was actually worse than this sentence gives us. I mean, it's not only a godless society. Her entire people group, the Jews, or as God calls them, the Israelites, they have been removed from their hometown of Jerusalem. They've been taken captive, and they've been carried off 600 miles to another empire. They were conquered by the Babylonians, and now the Persians have been in control of them. And they are in what we call exile. They're away from their home. But a lot has changed, and a few generations have passed, and actually now it's okay for them to go back to their hometown in Jerusalem. But they have this small problem. They've sort of forgotten how to live as a people of faith, and they've blended in with the society, the godless society around them. In fact, um, if you were here about a year ago, we looked at the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is the story of rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem. And then Ezra rebuilds the temple. And now we get to Esther. And Esther's like, everyone can go back. But for some reason, people are kind of just stuck. They're stuck in this Persian empire. And it's a godless society, and they are very much a minority. Now today, I don't think it's a stretch at all to say that we live in a godless society, and even though the Christian faith amasses numbers and numbers of people, many of those people have also blended in to the society around them. 
In fact, I've been a student of church history for a long time, and even the most recent history would not paint the church in a very positive light. In fact, I don't really care what metric you look at. The church in North America has been struggling and been in decline for quite some time. In fact, um, new churches, meaning church plants, we were a church plant 22 years ago. Uh, New church plants are way down, uh, meaning fewer and fewer people are starting new communities of faith. And on top of that, many churches are closing their doors. In fact, 2021, last year, my records indicate about 3,700 churches closed their door. Records would indicate that this year it might even be a little bit higher than that. And I know the tendency is to kind of think, well, come on, pastor, isn't some of this just COVID-related? Are we kind of all still under a COVID hangover? And, and actually, one study I looked at has been looking at church attendance, and they would say, including this year, so well after COVID, the last decade would indicate about a 12% reduction in church attendance. I think it's pretty easy to see that we have a godless society, and at times, very much, we are religious, uh, a religious minority. But the second question Esther is going to answer is maybe even a little bit harder. And it probably gets at maybe some of the more hot-button issues that we have today. And the question is this. How do you live your Christian values in a society that's in moral decline? Everyone just cheery this morning, like, thanks, Pastor. They're really just cheering me up this morning, right? But how do you live out your Christian values in a world in which there seems to be less and less of a, morale, of a morale around the values that it once held. I mean, I'll just be honest. I'm 50 years old, and in my life, when I think of moral decline, I just think of some of the things that are no longer in play. I mean, I, I remember when the Ten Commandments were in schools, and they're no longer, right? And you think about prayer, just the public assembly of gathering and prayer, about the only time that that happens in the public arena is here in church, And we have all these other issues. I mean, life is now debated. We have the constant redefinition of marriage. Human sexuality is essentially uh, anything goes, right? And and I know these are hot-button issues, and I find it so odd because if you go to your news feeds or if you watch Oprah or The View, you're you seem to kind of get one way in which to think. In fact, if anyone there in that arena tells you what's wrong with America, we all just kind of nod our heads like, "Uh uh-huh. But then when someone gets up and says, well, I think what's wrong is we've strayed from the principles and the values that God has laid out there, then people just become unglued. And that's why, Bridgeway, that's why I think this book is so important for us. I think that what you're going to find in the book of Esther is not only some answers, or at least some direction in these really hard questions, you're going to find the way in which Esther tells her story and navigates these issues is so artful. In fact, I I think Esther is actually a very underrated book in the Bible. Uh, I would say that I think Esther is actually probably the smartest book. Um, I I would say she's probably using the most, um, like, unconventional means of getting her point across it maybe even would be like at the top shelf of an intellectual read, but it doesn't really come across that way. It comes across as a story. And she uses kind of a different way of approaching the problems in her day. In fact, I want to give you kind of a spoiler alert um, in reading this book because there's one thing uh, blatantly missing in the book of Esther. Kind of hard to believe this, but read through all 10 chapters and you will not find a mention of God. God is not mentioned at all in this book. 
you're probably thinking, what? What can we learn from this book then? Well, a lot of the things that you think or you associate with dealing with the issues of our day are not present in this book either. In fact, I'll just, again, give you a few things that aren't mentioned in the book of Esther. Things like prayer, never mentioned in the book. Prophecy, not once. Scripture, Bible study. I don't know, gee, think of all the things that you would associate with like a healthy Christian faith in the world today, right? Like, I don't know what they would be. Maybe your list includes, well, a great men's ministry or a really outstanding women's ministry. None of those mentioned. Church potlucks. I love me some church potlucks, right? Like, I just love those. And none of them are mentioned in this book. You're thinking, Pastor, what, what on earth, what can we learn from this book? And what I want to tell you is to stick with this story because it parallels what we face today, a society, a religious minority in a world of moral decline. And the thing you're going to learn is not everything is as it seems. So, Hopefully by now you've found Esther chapter 1. And what I want to do today is I really just want to offer up kind of an introduction to the book. In fact, all I really want to do today is introduce you to the two main characters of Esther 1. I'm going to introduce you to the king and his queen, King Xerxes and his queen Vashti. They are husband and wife. Vashti is the queen of King Xerxes and the wife, but only for this chapter. And then next week come back and, and we'll meet kind of the main character of the story, Esther. She becomes the king's second wife. It's very complicated, very confusing, but we'll get to that part next week. Let's begin in Esther chapter 1, starting in verse 1. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. These Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet. Oh, yeah. I want you to do this. As I'm reading through this story, keep track of all the banquets that get mentioned. This is banquet number one. And it's for all his nobles and officials, the military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles of the provinces were present. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet, banquet number two, lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other, and the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink with no restrictions, for the, for the king instructed all his wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. Now let's just pause right there and take it all in, because I want you to know this Xerxes. In fact, I want you to kind of get an idea of what he values and how he ticks, and by extension, how his empire is being run. Now, one of the things I love about the Bible is the Bible isn't like a Greek myth or Aesop's fable. It's actually historically accurate. And so you can learn an awful lot about Xerxes outside of the Bible. In fact, Xerxes was this king of Persia in about 480 B.C., 
and the Persian Empire lasted. This book of Esther chronicles about 10 years of the empire. Now, like every great empire, eventually it falls. Xerxes gets defeated. Uh, they all do. The Babylonians got defeated. The Persians are going to get defeated. The Medes, the Greeks eventually. All the mighty fall. But not yet. And this is taking place in kind of this Persian empire. Now, if you take out your phone and you try to find the Persian empire, you won't find it on Google Maps. Uh, but I'll tell you, it's modern-day Pakistan and northern Iraq. And that's really important because you hear a lot of um, that being a war-torn, constant war region. It goes all the way back to this day and age. But this is Xerxes. And I want to show you a picture of what Hollywood says. This is how Hollywood depicts Xerxes. And I think there's some things we can observe from this picture. First of all, hi, my name is Xerxes. My favorite color is... Gold, and lots of it, right? Lots of gold, and we see that this guy, well, he's not too ashamed of his appearance, is he, right? Um, I don't know, I look at him, and I think he probably does a lot of cardio, maybe some intermittent fasting, I don't know, like, he could maybe hit the weights a little bit, get some kettlebells, maybe do some barbell work, I don't know, but you can tell, he's pretty into himself, is he not? I mean, is Xerxes the kind of guy that looks like he would struggle with Low self-esteem or self-image issues, not at all. It's all about Xerxes. And he cares a lot about his physical appearance and especially the physical appearance of the women who are around him. And this scene opens up with Xerxes, kind of in all his glory, and he's holding a banquet. Banquet number one is he needs to get ready to go to war against the Greeks. So it says he calls up all these military leaders and generals and princes. And did you catch how long that first party, that first banquet was? 180 days. That's six months of making sure that he does what? That he displays all of his glory. Whose glory? Xerxes' glory. And all of his majesty. Whose majesty? Oh, Xerxes' majesty. He's got to make sure everybody catches how great he is. And all these princes are watching this. They're, they're getting up to be a part of that. And then it rolls straight from the first banquet to a second banquet. Now, did you notice the second banquet? Not nearly as long. Did you also notice the guest list? It said it's for everyone. This kind of tells us something. Xerxes accomplished his goal in six months. He got all of those leaders, all of those generals, all of those commanders in place. And now he needs to round out the army, right? He needs the rank and file. And so he rolls out the red carpet again. Everyone's invited. Come on in. Party at the palace, right? And you get to sit on gold couches and drink the royal wine from your unique, one-of-a-kind golden goblet, right? Like he spares no expense, does this guy. And get that, it's an open bar, seven days, right? I mean, this is quite a party. In fact, um, I was reading through some historical accounts outside the Bible, and this was very common in the Persian Empire. In fact, they used these opportunities when their officials were highly intoxicated to make law and to pass law among all of the intoxicated people in the town. Can you imagine this? I mean, this is like people sitting around, they're debating politics current events. I can't believe the Lions lost another preseason game Friday, right? Like, they're having all that conversation in a highly intoxicated state. I can't imagine anything going wrong, right? Like, nothing's going to go wrong with this scene. Picking back up in verse 9. 
Queen Vashti also gave a banquet. Here we have it, banquet number three, for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, Mahuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagatha, Zethar, and Carcass, to bring before him Queen Vashti, wearing her royal crown, in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. I mean, you see this scene, right? I mean, here Xerxes is. He calls up his buddies, who are all eunuchs. That's a message for a completely different day. But he calls them up and he says, hey, I got this great idea. Bring me my wife. Let me parade her around in front of all these important people. And I got to tell you, the Bible doesn't tell us much about Vashti, and history doesn't tell us much about Vashti either, but this queen actually displays probably the most morals of anyone else in the entire book, Esther included. And this queen basically says, no, no way. You're not going to come parade me around after seven days of Miller time? No, thank you, right? I mean, she wants nothing to do with this. And I think this gives us enough, doesn't it? I mean, I think we have a contrast here between the king and one way to live and the queen maybe as illustration of another way to live. You have King Xerxes who knows no boundaries, who has no limits and serves an audience of one. And then you have the queen. While not much is mentioned, we see her stand up and hold her ground. And I think what the author is trying to do here is to just be really, really clear. Like, I think the author is trying to kind of burn this image in your mind. Here's the king. Here's this man, and he's unrestrained. He's got absolute power, and with it, what you're going to see is the absolute destruction of his empire. It completely goes off the tracks. Now, I tell you, I just, I kind of picture Xerxes as not only this powerful guy, but I would imagine he's probably a hard guy to say no to, right? Like, he's probably really hard to, to kind of try to get your way with, and, and I would probably imagine we have people like King Xerxes in our life. You probably have someone that's hard to say no to. You probably have someone who's in maybe a position of power over you in status or in rank, and they're hard to say no to. Maybe they're nothing as bad as Xerxes, but it's still hard to figure out how do I navigate this relationship. I'll tell you, I've been blessed. I've had mostly really incredible bosses uh, over my years, except for my first boss. And uh, I was thinking about him this week because I could just picture how hard it was for me to try to work and achieve and, and please. I was fresh out of college and trying to kind of make that first job really, really work and impress the boss. And I had one of these bosses that was just impossible, couldn't live up to his standards. In fact, I remember one of my performance, my very first performance review, uh, a line, a sentence from, and it was, it was, Ron Albach has exceeded the level of mediocrity. I don't think that was much of a compliment, but I, I never forgot that. And he was just one of those guys, hard to please. In fact, uh, we had company cars, and we would go on sales calls, and I remember getting in his car the, the first time, and company cars, so like, we could have our car washed, never had to pay for it, and tires rotated, and oil changes, and all that, never had to pay for a dime of that. But I remember getting in his car, and between the seat would be a bottle of Windex and a paper towel roll. And he'd be like, hey, well, we're going to the sales call. Do you mind just, you know, just clean off that window next and just, I mean, some people, they just have this 
level of entitlement. I don't even think that some people realize the type of power and what their power can do to affect other people. And again, this is a person who has lots of appearance, lots of power. I'm going to actually save a lot of what I'd like to say about image and appearance and how in our day and age, I think we have similar traps of idolizing our own levels of appearance. But I'm going to save that all for next week because next week, uh, I'm going to take you to the Miss Persian pageant. I'm going to take you to Persian Idol. We'll save that for next week. But I think for now, I just believe this author wants you to understand that every single person, these characters, they have a, a choice to make in how they are going to live. And your character matters. How you choose to live and how you choose to treat people around you matters. And all throughout this book, you're going to see the characters, the king and the queen now, but you're going to meet all these other characters, and they're going to have to choose, how do I live out my character in the life and time in which I've been called to? And how do I make the best choice with my character and what I shoot for in life? Maybe you could say that kind of some of the things we think about today are are sort of our goals. What's my goal in life? What's my mission in life? And the question becomes, do do I stay on track for that mission, that goal, or Do I allow myself to be drawn into, let's call them lesser missions, or maybe even a shadow, a dark side of that mission? And as you're thinking about the king this morning, I want you to think about your life and where you're directing it. In fact, I want to give you just three categories to think about this morning that I think are played out throughout this book. And these categories are purpose, pleasure, or protection. Now again, the purpose is the goal. God has a purpose for your life. But you can see it's so easy to get drawn into, well, you know, I'll, I'll settle for pleasure. I'd be just as happy if I'm just protected and safe. In fact, I think pleasure, without a doubt, describes this king. King Xerxes has no problem making sure that everything is oriented around his own personal pleasure. We see that in our day as well. But the goal is to find purpose, to find the purpose that God has for each one of us. Uh, It's a really good book that was written by a guy, a pastor named Rick Warren, and he wrote it a really long time ago. In fact, uh, 50 million copies can't be wrong. Purpose Driven Life was the name of the book, and I'll never forget the book because I've read it several times, but the opening line of that book is worth its weight in gold. And the opening sentence of that book is just very simply, it's not about you. And every page from that point on is trying to help the reader understand, well, then what is my purpose? What does God have in store for me? Kind of the opposite of how most of our self-help books are oriented today. And my question for you this first week in the series is just very simply, if the goal, if the mission is purpose, then do you know yours? Are you crystal clear on what the purpose God has given to your life, and are you seeking it? And are you seeking it over just maybe the pleasure and the protection that is so easy to fall into? In fact, I think our day and age today is obsessed and saturated with just seeking pleasure. I mean, we do whatever we want and whatever feels good. And, well, what about the consequences? Well, you know, I'll deal with that later. And again, there's this higher goal of purpose. Or maybe it's protection. Now, we don't see that so much this week. In fact, we see the opposite of protection. We see Queen Vashti kind of put her life on the line and kind of like have no concern for herself. But you're going to see other characters. You're going to see Esther included, and they're going to be dealing with the same thing. How do I, how do I protect myself in this environment? These are the questions 
that we all face. Do we shoot for purpose or do we settle for pleasure and protection? Now, I'll be honest with you, Vashti is, to me, the most fascinating character in this book, and she's not a follower of God. She's not. And this is going to be the last you hear of her, because when she says no to the king, she is banished from his empire. In fact, she's made to be an example for everyone else in the empire that you do not say no to the king. He doesn't want anything competing with his pursuit of pleasure. That's kind of interesting. I was reading through this book, and I didn't really find any commentators pick up on this, but I think there's a really clear biblical principle for marriage from these pagan, non-following, non-God-following husband and wife. I mean, this king and queen don't have God in their marriage, and yet they give us a very clear biblical principle for marriage. And we're talking about purpose this morning, but I want to remind you, did you know that, that you, by God, have been given a purpose for your marriage as well? That God wants your marriage to pursue the greatest level of purpose that you possibly could. And so not only are you individually faced with these decisions, but in your marriage you're faced with the same choices. Do we together, husband and wife, pursue a greater purpose than ourselves, or do we settle for just, well, you know, pleasure or protection and allow that to define who we are? Do I live sacrificially, laying it all out on the line, or do I live kind of in a self-seeking sort of way? And the purpose of a Christian marriage is always to glorify God. Whereas you see in this story, it's all about Xerxes. Xerxes wants all the glory for himself. Look at me. Look at my wealth. Look at my trophy wife even. And to me, that's just all kind of ironic. Like, the author's just kind of setting us up for what's going to happen next. I mean, this entire problem could have been avoided. This entire empire maybe wouldn't have just kind of rolled off the tracks if Xerxes had just humbled himself, had just kind of listened to what his, his wife was portraying and giving to him. See, I, I think in a marriage, we have this unique opportunity to listen to the other person. For a husband and a wife to kind of be on the same page as to what they see, not only out there, but in here. Kind of fascinating if you think about it. I mean, marriage is that closest relationship. And so in a marriage, you have an insight into the way in which your spouse works. You see all the things that are great about them, and you see all the things that maybe others don't. And then the question becomes, well, what do I do with that information? What do I do? Do I, like Xerxes, just ignore it and don't want to hear anything else from that person? Or do I take it as maybe there's some truth here for me to behold? Really good book on marriage written um, a few years ago by a guy named Tim Keller. Uh, wrote the book called The Meaning of Marriage. And I think uh, his words in here are just pure gold. Everything he says is so solid. But I want to read you this quote. He says something similar. He says, each person says, I see your flaws, your imperfections, your weaknesses, your dependencies, but underneath them all, I see growing the person God wants you to be. And I think that's the purpose of marriage, is when the other person can see inside of their spouse and say, you know what, I see you for who you are, and it's not all that the world sees you as, but, but I also see growing underneath the kind of person that God wants you to become. And I think this is the picture of a Christian marriage where there is this ability to see in and then to pull out this ability to be mutually loving, mutually encouraging, mutually truth-telling. Now, I don't want to go too far out on this line because I, I don't know if Vashti is a great example of, of a marriage, but I do see how Xerxes resisted and how we have the opportunity to not allow truth to just sort of pass us by. 
I think this couple is very unique. They didn't have God in their life. And yet if you're here today, you can have God in your marriage. You can invite him in. You can call upon him. You can ask him to help you in the ways in which maybe you're hung up on imperfections and flaws. And God is calling you to another way of, of purpose, purpose-seeking in your marriage. Now, as I said, this isn't a message all uh, this isn't a message all about marriage, but it is all about finding our purpose. So I want to bring you back to that question. Do you know the purpose that God has for you? I think it's really challenging, and that's why I want to press you further on this question. Do you know your purpose? Especially in Rockford, I think it's easy. It's dangerously easy in a community like Rockford to just sort of settle, to say there's a purpose, but you know what? I'm okay with not hitting them. I'm okay with a lesser purpose. I'm okay with just being busy, or, or just being really good at my job, or making sure my, my kids have it all. I'm really good at those things. And, and not that those in and of themselves are bad, but is it the purpose that God has called you to glorify him in all that he's called you to do? You're going to find in this story and throughout this book that Esther is an amazing story of stumbling through all these seasons in her life. And she doesn't always get it right, but she's constantly on the search, on the hunt for the purpose that God has for her. And the last thought I want to leave you with is there is a hero in this story. And the hero is not Vashti, as noble as she is in this opening chapter. And the hero is definitely not King Xerxes. But the hero is not even Esther. The real hero of this story is God. And the real hero of your life and your story can be God as well. A God who remembers you. We need to really hold on to those words that a God, that the God is a God who remembers you. He doesn't just scratch his head and say, oh yeah, yeah, I think I made that person. God knows you intimately. He knows you personally. And that God has a purpose and a plan for your life. Jeremiah 29, 11, right? God has a purpose and a plan for your life to not leave you or forsake you. And I think in a world that is just so dominated by what matters is wealth and appearance and status and a network of highly influential people, God comes to you as the king, and he offers you his hand, and he offers you relationship. I want to invite the worship team to come up, and I want to just remind you, come back next week, and we're going to look at how Esther finds her purpose and discovers that journey for herself. I want to invite you to pray with me. If you would bow your head and pray with me, please. God, I want to just close this message by saying thank you. Thank you for this amazing story, and thank you for remembering us here today, that you don't leave us or forsake us. And even when we've forgotten, we've forgotten your goodness and your grace and your mercy and the way in which you've placed us in this world for purpose. When the world makes us feel like failures or like we've sold out to appearance and pleasure, you remind us, never forget how valuable we are. God, I just pray that everyone here would know and sense your love, that they would know this morning that they are loved and treasured and that you look down and you see into their individual lives and you want them to hear the words that they, they are the apple of your eye this morning, that you never forget them, their pain or their challenge or their difficulty. That God, you are here and that we can call on you now. God, I just pray for those who are here and that as a church, as we go down this path and this journey, that as we have decisions that we need to make about how we live out our lives, and how we seek for purpose, God, that those are important decisions, destiny-shaping, purpose-making, life-or-death decisions. And God, I just pray that you would help us to have the boldness and the clarity of walking with you. Father God, we love you and we praise you. 
Father, give all our hearts to you in song. In your name we pray. Thanks for listening to our podcast today. Check out our app or website at bridgewaycommunity.org for more messages or to take the sermon one step deeper by downloading the Sermon Discussion Guide. 